You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 75, The Continental Congress in Autumn of 1775. The last few weeks have been about military operations, so today I want to turn our attention back to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia as they got back to work in September of 1775. I last covered the Continental Congress back in Episode 68 when they were finishing up their summer session. Now, Congress had planned to restart a new session on September 5th, but had to wait another week before they could get a quorum. Part of this may have been the result of the Independence Hurricane that I mentioned a few weeks ago. It had battered the southern colonies and dumped rain on the central colonies for several days, making travel very difficult. In this new session, Georgia finally sent a full delegation to the Congress. This was the last colony to send a full delegation. In addition, a few other delegates joined or left, the most notable being Patrick Henry, who returned to Virginia to serve as commander-in-chief of Virginia's military. Also, Peyton Randolph of Virginia returned to Congress. With his return, many expected that he would once again assume the presidency that John Hancock had taken when he left. But Hancock refused to step down. He believed he was elected after Randolph left and had no obligation to give up the chair. Randolph took his seat with the rest of the delegates, but the incident particularly annoyed the Massachusetts delegation. Remember, they were still trying to do everything they could to make nice with the other colonies. The presidency was pretty meaningless in terms of power. Mostly, they just sat in a chair up front and recognized the next speaker. So mostly, it was a position of honor. And Hancock was potentially generating hard feelings with the other colonies over a stupid title. On the other hand, Hancock was still annoyed with his fellow Massachusetts delegates for not making him commander of the Continental Army. He was not about to give up another prestigious position so that John Adams could curry favor with others. In the end, he probably should have stepped down. Randolph died rather suddenly the next month in October, and Hancock probably would have been re-elected again anyway. The fall session of Congress involved quite a bit of executive-style work. Since the colonies had no chief executive or executive branch, Congress had to run all the day-to-day -day functions of government, which, at this point, was mostly running the army. A Congress had formed dozens of committees where delegates worked on various projects. Some committees only lasted a few weeks, say to draft a declaration or a petition. Other committees became standing committees to deal with, say, the financing of the army or setting up international diplomacy. Over the entire life of the Continental Congress, members formed literally thousands of committees to deal with all problems large and small. In 1775 alone, 
Congress created about 60 committees simply dealing with military matters. It was over the course of this fall session that most members accepted that the fight would not be resolved anytime soon. Washington's army was not going to deliver any sort of crushing blow to the British garrison at Boston, and Congress had also received word from London that the king had refused to accept the Olive Branch petition and went firmly on the record that he supported the positions of his ministry and of Parliament generally. They also received the king's proclamation that the colonies were in full rebellion and that Britain would respond militarily, not with more political negotiations. As a result, delegates spent much of the fall gearing up for a longer-term war. Committees would oversee what was clearly becoming a long-term conflict. One committee in Congress dealt only with the letters and reports coming from George Washington himself on a daily basis. The new commanding general saw part of his job as being an agent for Congress with the Army. He kept Congress fully informed about the state of the Army, efforts to improve it, and continual requests for more supplies. Another key committee was the Secret Committee in charge of procuring arms and ammunition for the Army. Because much of what this committee did was considered what we would call today classified military secrets, it operated without the full input from the whole Congress and became more and more like an effective Department of War. The immediate need for thousands of small arms, dozens of cannon, and tons of desperately needed gunpowder was the main focus of the committee. Congress also created a three man committee consisting of Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Lynch and Benjamin Harrison to travel to Cambridge to meet with Washington personally and inspect the new Continental Army. They would arrive at the Army for their inspection in October. Generally, the review seemed to go smoothly, and it gave the delegates a better perspective on the military problems that Washington was facing. The committee spent a few weeks with the Army going over a whole range of issues, from discussions on how to attack Boston to supply and logistics issues, military discipline, and recruiting. After the committee returned to Philadelphia, Congress would act on many of their recommendations. Some of the other discussions centered around whether to allow Indians and blacks into the Army. Both were already there. Many black New Englanders had already joined the Provisional Army well before Washington arrived. Also, members of the Penobscot, Stockbridge, and St. John's Indian tribes had sent warriors to join the militia following Lexington and Concord. These tribes had long and close relationships with the New England colonists and had treaties agreeing to mutual defense. In the end, Washington and the committee agreed to accept the Indian tribes into the Continental Army, but not any of the blacks, either free or slave. Armed blacks were a big concern, particularly for Southern delegates. In September, South Carolina delegate Edward Rutledge had proposed a resolution for Washington to immediately discharge all blacks from the Continental Army. Now, after some debate, Congress rejected the proposal, probably because they wanted Washington's input before acting on it. Now, after those discussions with Washington, Congress agreed not to recruit any more blacks, though it seems clear that they did not make any effort to kick out the existing black soldiers already serving in integrated units. Washington, who on his initial arrival in Cambridge had wanted to remove all of the black soldiers, had had a change of heart. 
and may have actually looked the other way as new black soldiers enlisted into the army. Part of this may have been that they were just so desperate for any soldiers as enlistments were expiring. I certainly know that when the army moved to New York in the summer of 1776, several people commented on the mixed-race units. So, whether officially or unofficially, there were at least some African Americans serving alongside white soldiers in defense of the Patriot cause. Officially, though, despite the need for soldiers for that year, and despite the fact that the British were actively recruiting blacks for Loyalist regiments, the ban on black soldiers remained on the books for over a year. Many Southern delegates did not want the war to become about freeing their slaves. They also did not want blacks fighting as soldiers to later make an issue of emancipation. Also that same October, Congress turned its attention to the Navy. The Patriots did not yet have a Navy, but decided that they needed one. Rhode Island, which had already converted several ships to military use and was using them to harass British shipping in New England, had instructed its delegates to get Congress thinking about a Navy. Even if the colonies could not dominate the seas, they could make life difficult for transport ships and capture supplies from the enemy. One of the first naval committees, made up of three New Englanders, John Adams, John Langdon, and Silas Dean, tried to come up with a plan to address the immediate need. They knew two British supply ships were headed to Boston, full of arms and ammunition. They wanted to figure out a plan to capture those ships before they arrived. The immediate plan called for the arming of several existing merchant vessels for an attack. The committee authorized the purchase and arming of two ships for this use, as well as the commission of a third ship. Congress approved these actions on October 13, 1775, which is the date the U.S. Navy now recognizes as its birthday. Congress also authorized the raising of two battalions of Marines to serve aboard these ships. Initially, they planned to draw the Marine Corps out of the Army. After further consideration, though, they decided on November 10th to form the new Marine Corps regiments out of new recruits in Philadelphia. The Marines now recognize that date as the birthday of the Marine Corps. But these acts were really ad hoc decisions to deal with an immediate problem. The issue made clear the need to have a real permanent Navy with armed ships ready to go and actively patrolling the coast. Now, you may be asking, why did Congress create an army almost immediately in June, but wait until October and November to really get around to thinking about a navy? Well, consideration of a navy had been delayed until now because many in Congress still held out hope that the dispute was going to be resolved quickly. Unlike an army, which is just getting a bunch of men together, building ships could take many months before they would be ready. Until the people accepted that this fight might take years, there was no point in starting such a project. Also, Britain had the most powerful navy in the world. Many questioned whether there was even any point in trying to challenge Britain on the open sea. And by the end of October, Congress established a permanent committee to consider the development of a real navy. By November, Congress adopted rules for the regulation of a colonial navy and authorized the acquisition of 13 more ships to defend the coastline. A fleet would take time and money, but now that we're thinking about a longer-term war, the colonists knew they would have to try something to challenge British control of the seas. 
Another big political issue that fall was what to do with all the Tories and Loyalists on the continent. On October 6, the delegates passed a resolution calling for the arrest of all Loyalists considered dangerous to the, quote, liberties of America, end quote. This essentially created open season on any colonists who did not express support for the Patriot cause, though it was mostly directed at Loyalists who were actively recruiting regiments to fight for the king or at governors who were still trying to get the colonists to reject the rule of the provincial congresses. Local colonies began to distribute various loyalty oaths that proclaimed loyalty to the colony or the Patriot cause rather than the king. Congress also received word that fall of British trade restrictions. In response, Congress banned the export of any produce or livestock from the colonies, except those used for the purchase of military supplies. So, with that, both sides had essentially banned all international trade. On November 7th, Congress made some addition to the Articles of War. One was to add the death penalty for holding, quote, treacherous correspondence, end quote, or giving intelligence to the enemy. This was apparently a direct response to the Benjamin Church incident in September that I discussed a few episodes ago. Other rules dealt with problems facing the new army. Officers found guilty of fraud or embezzlement could forfeit all pay and be cashiered from the army. Soldiers could be demoted or flogged. Dismissals for officers and floggings for soldiers were also applied to being drunk on duty, falling asleep on duty, or leaving one's post. Officers could be dismissed for cowardice and would have their names published in local newspapers. Anyone deserting to the enemy or fomenting mutiny or sedition could face the death penalty. It established other penalties for plundering property while in battle, showing cowardice before the enemy, leaving camp without permission, or disobeying the orders of a superior officer. All of these new rules were based on experience, many of them recommended by Washington himself to deal with problems that he had already faced with his new army. Congress also received word that fall that the British were considering sending an army to pacify the southern colonies. It seemed unfair to have the whole Continental Army in New England and New York fighting the war, while leaving the southern colonies open to fend for themselves. So Congress began taking steps to organize the state militaries in the South to put them under Continental control. This would also mean that they would pay the soldiers there with more Continental currency. As I've already mentioned, by late fall of 1775, almost all the colonies had tossed out their royal governments, and the ones that still were in place were unable to really do anything. But now the colonies were unclear on how they should proceed. New Hampshire and South Carolina instructed their delegates to ask Congress how they should govern the colonies now that they had overthrown British control. After some debate, Congress recommended forming state conventions so that the people could decide for themselves what form of government to create. This was a really big deal. Although Congress had already approved Massachusetts for setting up an independent government, that was because the colony was already in open warfare with its governor. Many delegates still clung to the hope that this was temporary and that they could find a political compromise and that even Massachusetts would soon return to a traditional government with a royal governor. By this time, though, other colonies sought congressional legitimacy for their independent governments. 
congressional approval of governments completely independent of the crown was essentially declaring independence. That was the goal officials in London accused them of seeking, and which most delegates still vehemently denied wanting. The debate, therefore, was rather contentious. During the debates, John Adams began to refer to the local entities as states rather than colonies. Although Congress approved setting up independent governments, it was not yet ready to adopt Adams's proposal to call them states. Although Adams and most of New England had accepted by now that independence had to be the ultimate goal, and the other side in London also pronounced in no uncertain terms that the Patriots were clearly headed toward independence, the majority of the Continental Congress was not yet ready to admit that point. Despite Congress's reluctance to use the I-word, Congress did go ahead and tell the colonies to hold conventions so that people could approve the form of government they wanted, at least until they could resume normal relations within the British Empire again. This went well beyond having Massachusetts operate a government under an earlier version of the Royal Charter. Congress now approved creating an entirely new and independent government based solely on what the people of that colony wanted. In other words, this was a huge step toward independence, even if Congress didn't want to admit it explicitly. Also around this same time, Congress had to start thinking about another important step toward becoming an independent state. It began to think about opening diplomatic relations with other countries. Congress desperately needed to trade with other countries, if only to get the supplies necessary to continue the war. Americans did not have enough industry, at least not on the scale needed, to create gunpowder, mine lead for balls, manufacture muskets and cannons, or create a great many other things the army needed. Colonies had always purchased such items from Britain, which now seemed a little disinclined to make such sales to them. While they got by raiding British transports and knocking over the occasional unguarded stash, they needed to find a more reliable source of munitions and other supplies. A few delegates also recognized that allies might distract Britain from suppressing the rebellion in America, an alliance that caused other European powers to go to war with Britain would definitely work to America's advantage. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, France had sent an agent named Bonvoulard to meet with Congress quietly and see what France could do to make Britain's life more miserable. Bonvoulard had met discreetly with Benjamin Franklin and other delegates at Carpenter's Hall. While Bonvoulard would not admit to being in Philadelphia in any official capacity, he did indicate that France may be of assistance in providing much-needed munitions, as well as engineering experts needed for fort construction and other military defenses. His meetings helped Congress appreciate that some countries in Europe might be willing to assist America in its fight. Already, France had seemed to be helping quietly. Though it officially respected Britain's ban on anyone in Europe selling munitions to the colonies, the French colony of San Domingo, what we call today the Dominican Republic, had sold about 30 tons of gunpowder in the late summer. In November, the British royal governor of Jamaica reported to London that the French in Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti, had imported a record amount of munitions which seemed to be disappearing into the holds of American merchant vessels. In late November, 
the Continental Congress established a committee of secret correspondence to contact various countries in Europe and figure out who might be interested in providing assistance. A few weeks later, it appropriated $3,000 to send American diplomats to Europe to see if they could work with any European powers interested in supporting the American struggle against Britain. Congress also expressed concern about how the Indians might ally themselves. William Johnson, who had been a very successful British Indian agent for many decades, had died in 1774. His nephew, Guy Johnson, had taken his place among the Iroquois. Johnson had a home in upstate New York and held a good working relationship with the Iroquois Confederation. In early 1775, Johnson had been forced to flee to Canada, where General Gage ordered him to organize the Indians to assist with the attack on the rebels in Massachusetts. Johnson had not yet made much progress, but if he could get a united Indian force to rise against the rebels, that would be a big problem. To counter this, Congress employed Samuel Kirkland, a missionary who already lived in upstate New York with the Iroquois. Congress hoped to use Kirkland to convince the Iroquois to maintain neutrality in what was becoming a full-blown war between Britain and the colonies. Now, Kirkland would only have mixed success, but he would keep at least some of the Iroquois from siding with the British. Congress had pretty much burned through the $2 million that it had authorized to be printed for the war so far. With all the new expenses, on November 29th, Congress authorized the printing of another $3 million worth of continental currency. Technically, these were still bills of credits, which promised the bearer to be repaid with real money at some point, somehow. Within a few days, Congress would send $500,000 worth of that new money to Washington for use in getting the soldiers to re-enlist for the coming year. Congress already owed several months back pay, plus it wanted to offer bonuses for re-enlistment. Much of the rest of the money would go toward the new Navy, the Southern Army, and a host of other government expenses. Congress also reached out to the colonies to see about them starting to, hey, kick in a little bit and pay off some of these mounting debts. But for a group of colonies that started this war because they did not want to pay off war debts accrued in London, many would show the same reluctance to pay off war expenses accrued in Philadelphia. So with that, I'm going to step away from Congress and its political wrangling. Next week, we're going to head up to New England as Benedict Arnold attempts to bring an army through the New England wilderness toward Quebec. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to that, I want to once again thank everyone who has left a five-star review for the podcast on iTunes. That really does help get the word out to others. It helps raise our profile and puts us a little more prominently on lists when people are looking for a new podcast to try. This week we got caught up on the Continental Congress. Whenever I do an episode on the Congress, I seem to end up covering a wide variety of scattered topics. That's probably because Congress was always involved in a wide variety of scattered topics at any one time. I also sometimes feel like I'm giving short shrift to many of the topics I'm trying to cover. Like, I'd like to probably get into some more detail about the founding of the Navy and the Marines, and perhaps I can dive a little deeper into that in a future episode. If you are interested now, though, on those topics, check out the links at the bottom of my blog for some good articles. It is available at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Now, usually for a book review, I pick a book that is related to the day's topic. However, on occasion, I divert from this practice to recommend a book that has absolutely nothing to do with the topic. And that is the case today. There's a new book that is going to hit the bookstores in a few weeks called Light Horse Harry Lee by Ryan Cole. Now, if you know about Lee, probably the main thing you know about him is that he was the father of the famous Civil War general, Robert E. Lee. But Light Horse Harry had a full and interesting life of his own, although it got rather tragic at the end. Lee served as a cavalry officer for most of the Revolution, gaining a solid reputation for his hit-and-run actions that caused the British great distress. He came from a wealthy and powerful Virginia family, His father served in the House of Burgesses and held other political offices. After the war, Harry married well into another wealthy and powerful Virginia family and owned several large plantations. He served in the Continental Congress for a time and served several terms as governor of Virginia. During that time, he famously eulogized George Washington as first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Sadly, though, Lee had two serious problems that hurt him later in life. First, he was really bad with money. He lost many friends as a result of questionable financial dealings and eventually found himself in debtor's prison. Second, he was a staunch Federalist. This led him to be a leading advocate for Virginia's ratification of the Constitution, but by 1800 or so, most of the Virginia leadership was veering into the Democratic-Republican Party, and Lee remained a Federalist. Most of the Federalist Party's power retreated up into New England. As a result, in his later years, many of those in power were not inclined to assist him, as he was not on the same political team. Lee stuck to his political guns, though, and ended up being beaten up and left for dead in Baltimore after he tried to defend a Federalist newspaper editor there. After that, he left for the West Indies, where he tried to recover, and died a few years later while trying to return to the United States. It was a tragic end for someone who reached quite a bit of success earlier in life. 
Cole's new biography on Lee delves deeply into his life using a great many primary sources. The book is well-researched, very thorough at over 400 pages, and well worth the read. I think this is Cole's first book, although he has published many articles and other works primarily focused on the Civil War. The book is scheduled for release on January 15, 2019. If you want to pre-order, there is a link on my website to do so. Just go to www.amrevpodcast.com and click on the link for the book recommendation of the week. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.